I wonder how many of us remember the details of John F. Kennedy's inaugural address in January of 1961. Anyone? <laughs> We've got one. <laughs> I would venture to say most of us have probably never seen the address. Most of us have never read the transcript. We don't, we don't know what he said. But the interesting thing is most of us, at least those of us ab above a certain age, maybe 25, I don't know, most of us are aware of the main point of his address. And the reason is because we remember one memorable line from his conclusion. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. If you don't know anything else about that speech, and you know that one line, you know all that's pertinent about the speech. And that's what a good conclusion does. That's what a good speech writer does. That's what a good debater does. A good writer writes a letter, makes an argument, and then condenses all of the details, all of the things that he said that he knows his audience won't remember all of, and he condenses it into one memorable thing that can be taken away from wherever they hear his message. And if you don't remember anything else, you remember this. That's what Paul did in the verses that we're about to read. This is Paul's conclusion to the book of Galatians. So all of the weeks leading up to now culminates in this one conclusion. And we're going to see Paul do the same thing that JFK did. Well, maybe, vi maybe vice versa. Um, but he's going to package his whole argument into one memorable thing. And so we're going to pay attention to that today. So let's read Galatians 6, 11 through 18, and then we'll talk about them. Starting in verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who want to force you to be circumcised and only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not for themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they might boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for those who walk by this rule, Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. The first thing that Paul said in his conclusion might seem strange to us. He said, look at the large letters that I'm using to write. I'm writing this with my own hand. Why did he say that? In his time, in ancient times, it was customary. If you were writing a long letter like this, you didn't sit down and pen the whole thing with your own hand. Instead, you would dictate it. You would kind of speak stream of thought. In my mind, there, he's walking around with a candle pacing back and forth in a room, and he's just talking, and his scribe is writing it. <laughs> and I don't know what the setting really looked like, but... What I do know is that reading the letter, the original audience would have seen from Galatians 1.1 through Galatians 6.10, the same handwriting. His scribe's handwriting would have been what, what they were looking at. And then in verse 11, it changes. 
In verse 11, the, the letters get bigger, the font changes, the style changes, and Paul says, I'm writing this with my own hands. What, what was he communicating with that? He was saying the same thing that any parent has ever said to their child when they want them to pay attention. <laughs> you get down and you grab their shoulders, or at least that's what I do. You grab their shoulders, you say, look at me in the eyes. I'm not joking. I'm serious. Pay attention. Listen. That's what Paul was saying. I'm, I have taken the pen from the scribe. I am writing this myself. Pay attention. So what was it that he wanted us to pay attention to? Well, I think what we saw is two main ideas. And in all honesty, you're going to see so much overlap in these two main ideas that you could really argue that they're the same idea and we're going to look at it from different perspectives. But we're going to call it, for the sake of clarity and so that you don't think I was lazy this week, we're going to call it two things. <laughs> the first thing that we're going to pay attention to is that Paul said that his boast was only in Christ and him crucified. And by extension, our boast should only be in Christ and him crucified. And the second point, very closely related, like I said, a lot of overlap, is that the only assurance we can have for our salvation, the only thing we should look to for our assurance, is that we've been made a new creation. And we'll kind of tease that out as we go today. But in verse 12, Paul makes clear to his audience that the Judaizers were trying to get them to follow the law, not for their good, but for the Judaizers' good. It helped the Judaizers avoid persecution if they could boast in the flesh of the Galatians. If they could say, listen to the Jews who were persecuting the Christians, listen, we've turned those backward Galatians around. They thought it was by faith alone that they would be saved. By faith alone, they would be counted as the people of Abraham, the children of Abraham, and therefore the children of God. But we've explained to them it's not by faith alone. It's by faith and following the law. We've, we've fixed that confusion. And so by doing that, they could kind of keep one foot in the camp of Christianity, so to speak, in their minds, and one foot in Judaism, and avoid persecution. And so Paul was calling attention to that, but then the interesting thing is in verse 17, we see that it seems like the Judaizers were saying something similar about Paul. It seems like they would have been saying something like, to the Galatians, Paul's only trying to teach you this for his good. It's for his benefit somehow. And so we see in verse 17, Paul says, So from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Christ, of Jesus. He was saying, listen, I don't have anything to gain by this. Whether you believe me, whether you believe them, it doesn't, it doesn't profit me. Really, I've been persecuted until this point, and I'll probably continue to be persecuted, even if you believe this. Don't let anybody bother me about this. And I think that that serves our first point, that we don't have anything to boast in except for Christ and Him crucified. Because if you think about who Paul was and think about his resume... In my opinion, the greatest missionary of all time. He took the gospel from the Jewish background Christians to the nations, really as far as the ancient world considered the world to be. He took the gospel everywhere. We can largely thank him for much of our New Testament. And then in, on top of that, he endured so much suffering that we, we can't comprehend. He was stoned repeatedly, left for dead. He was so injured they thought he was going to die. He was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was bitten by serpents. 
imprisoned multiple times. Ultimately, we know he was under house arrest, and Christian tradition tells us that he was ultimately beheaded because he would not stop proclaiming the gospel. If anyone has something to boast in, I think it's Paul. If anyone had something to say, if God's going to accept, accept someone based on works, it's going to be me. I think Paul had a good case to make for himself. And yet he said, I don't boast in anything. Verse 14, I don't boast in anything except Christ and Him crucified. Paul knew, and I don't want us to misunderstand that and, and think that Paul was talking about himself kind of in a self-deprecating way, saying, you know, I know God's used me for all of these things, to plant these churches, to take the gospel so far and to do all that, but it really, it's, it's not any good. <laughs> That's not what he was saying. He was, we see elsewhere that he was proud of some of the things in a, in a godly way. He was proud of some of the things that God had used him for. But before God, he has no boast to make. That's what the Jewish law was. The Jewish law, keeping the Jewish law was an attempt especially on the part of the Galatians and the way that the Jews viewed it, was an attempt to garner God's favor, to garner God's love, to earn what has been given through Christ. And Paul was saying that's boasting in something that's not Jesus. That's boasting in some, relying on those things is boasting on something other than Christ. And far be it for me to do that with anything. Paul came from a background that encouraged earnings through religious, religious rites. But it's deep in the heart of all humanity. It's deep in the heart of our culture, too. Maybe not thinking that we have to earn God's favor through works, but we certainly, from our American Western mindset, we believe that we have to earn anything that's given to us, right? Not just salvation, not just God's love, but we have to feel like we contribute something in order for us to matter, in order for us to be valued. And so what Paul's talking about here comes straight to us too, because we have the same tendency that the Galatians had. And that same tendency is probably why the Galatians were so quick to accept the Judaizers' lie that they need to follow the law. It's hard to believe that it's just given by grace, salvation, God's favor, adoption as sons and daughters of God, by grace, through faith, period. That's hard to accept in, in our flesh. And so when the Galatians heard something else like, oh, yes, faith, but you also need to do this, they were quick to accept it. That makes sense. But Paul said, far be it for me to boast in anything that's not Christ. But I think that the reason that we look to things like that is because those things assure us that we are valued. Those things, whatever it might be in our minds that we've made up that give us value in this context to God, we look to those things to assure us of our salvation. And that leads us to our second point that we're going to spend the majority of our time on today, that the only thing that can assure us of our salvation is that we've been made a new creation. J.D. Greer, some of you probably know his name. He's a pastor in North Carolina. He's written a book called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. He says that if anyone holds the world record in, of asking Jesus into their heart, saying the sinner's prayer, he says that he is the proud owner of that 
reward, award. In his very own words, he said, Every time I said the sinner's prayer, I was sincere. But I was never quite sure I had gotten it right. Had I really been sorry enough for my sin the first time around? Other people, when they said the sinner's prayer, they cried. But I hadn't done that. Was I really sorry? Or was I just saying the words? Was that prayer a moment of total surrender? Or was I holding back some? Did I really understand grace? That sounds absurd, maybe on the face of it, but through conversations I've had with people here at our church, I know that, that, that is, that's something that resonates with a lot of us. We've, a lot of us have experienced, uh, if not now, still experience it through our lives. We've experienced this question of, am I really saved? And I think the reason for that is we're, we're looking to the wrong things to assure us of our salvation. That question, am I really saved, that was at the heart of the Galatians' fear. And so they were quick to adopt something that would give them assurance, the Jewish law. They could look at that, they could point at that, they could say, I've done this, therefore I must be saved. But the Galatians' struggle, struggle and J.D. Greer's struggle and some of our struggle, it comes from believing that our salvation is dependent on something other than Christ and Him crucified. It comes from boasting in something other than Christ. And so whatever it is we're looking to for our, the assurance of our salvation, that is the thing that we're boasting in that's not Christ and Him crucified. So while the Galatians may have believed that it was the Jewish law that would do it for them, most of us wouldn't be given to that lie. Most of us wouldn't be given to that deception that's too far out there. We know that's wrong. But we accept a lot of other lies that are far more subtle and a lot more culturally acceptable. Maybe we're like J.D. Greer, and maybe we think it's the sinner's prayer. Maybe we, we ask questions like, did I get emotional enough? Did I, I didn't cry. Was I feeling sorry enough? Was I contrite enough? Was I repentant enough? The implication of all of those questions is that my salvation is determined by whether or not my sinner's prayer was said correctly. Or maybe the questions that we ask ourselves is, do I read my Bible enough? Do I pray enough? Am I tempted by sin too much? What in my life, are my affections stirred enough for things of the Spirit, enough that I can feel as though I'm certain that I'm saved? Does that sound familiar? <laughs> To any of us, I, all of those things are good questions, but they're nothing more than diagnostics. They can tell us if we're healthy. Maybe they can tell us where we need to grow. Maybe they can tell us uh, areas that we're really struggling and we need people to pray for us on. But none of the, if the answers to all of those things are yes, yes, I read my Bible, yes, I pray, yes, uh, my affections are stirred, yes, 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 across the board, none of those yeses determine if you're saved. And if we think that they are, we're boasting in something that's not Christ. We need to be assured because we've been made a new creation. And we're going to talk about what that means in just a minute. But what I want to point out is the answer to all of those questions, they, they all lie in a little bit differently in all of our minds, but the truth is that if we have an answer to that, like this is how much 
I should read my Bible if I want to feel like God loves me and accepts me and cares for me. Or this is how much I should pray. Or this is how much is an acceptable amount of temptation to feel versus a not acceptable amount of temptation. How many times have I fallen back into the same sin? The answers to all of those questions that determine, yes, I can be confident that I'm saved, or no, I can't, they are all subjective. All of those answers are in your own mind, and you've made them all up, because you haven't found them in Scripture. And so what those questions do is one of two things. It'll either inspire pride, because you have excelled and exceeded your own minimum expectations, (laughs) And from that point, you can look down and evaluate everyone else and see if they measure up to our own expectations that we have set for them. Or what is, I think, equally as common, or maybe even more common, those types of questions and those standards that we make up in our own mind lead us to an an anxiety-ridden life of wondering, does God accept me? Does God love me? Does God really care for me the way that a father cares for his child? If the answer is on anything else other than Christ and him crucified, we're going to realize that we don't measure up. And so our assurance has to come from Christ and him crucified. So then the question becomes, because here we see in verse 15 that Paul says, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but only a new creation. So that's the question that matters. How do we know that we've been made into a new creation? Turn with me to John 3. Most of us are familiar with this conversation. Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is asking him, or Jesus is telling him, about how to get into the kingdom of heaven. And so we're going to hear Jesus' answer, and we're going to see a few key phrases, or two key phrases. One is born again, and we'll see that in the very first sentence, verse I know some of you are still turning there. We're not going to read further than this first verse initially. But truly, truly, I say to you, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When you hear that term, we're going to keep reading, but when you hear that term, unless a person is born again, or you hear uh, have eternal life, I want you to think is made a new creation. Because when you're born again, you are made a new creation. When you receive eternal life, you are made a a new creation. When you receive the Holy Spirit, made a new creation. It's all the same idea, okay? So starting in verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless unless one is born again or made a new creation, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be true? And then I want us to all skip down to verse 14. This is Jesus' answer to that. How can these things be true? And Jesus said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus said that whoever believes in him should not perish but be made a new creation. That's what Paul said is the only thing that matters. Have you been made a new creation? What did Jesus say is the prerequisite, the only prerequisite to being made a new creation? If you believe in Jesus, then you have been made a new creation. And that is the assurance of our salvation. Not the good things that we do, not the feelings that we feel, not the emotions... Jesus has promised that everyone who believes in him will be saved. Those people will receive the Holy Spirit. Those people will be born again. That is our assurance. And so for those of us who are not familiar with the Old Testament story that Jesus was referring to whenever he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent, he was talking about a time when the Israelites were in their wandering years and they had strayed and they had sinned and God sent fiery serpents, poisonous serpents, to go among them and to bite them and to kill them. And so as they began crying out to God, asking for his mercy, he told Moses to fashion a bronze serpent, hold it up in the sky, and that everyone who looked at it would be healed. They would, their lives would be restored. And Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so also I will be lifted up, that everyone who believes in me will be and will receive eternal life. How did the Israelites know that looking at that serpent was going to heal them? God promised it, right? They didn't have anything else. They weren't doing anything. God said, if you look at this serpent, I will give you physical healing and physical life. We have a a just as promise. If we look to Jesus, if we believe in Jesus, then we will be made a new creation, period. End, end of story right there. That's, that's the only question that matters whenever we're asking ourselves, does God love me? Does God accept me? Has God should, does he favor me as a father favors his own children? The question is not what, what do I do to earn that? Because any of those answers would be boasting in something that's not Jesus. The question is, did Christ die for me and rise for my justification and Has God promised me that if I look to him and believe in him, that he will make me a new creation? And the answer to that is yes. And so the only question that remains is, do I believe in Jesus? And if the answer is yes, then I can trust God to fulfill his promise. So flip with me. If you don't want to turn, the words will be on the screen. But what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Surely that's more than just an intellectual assent. Uh, In Acts 2, we see Peter kind of give a truncated explanation of what it means to believe in Jesus. So I think it's important. We're not going to dive too deeply into this. But in Acts 2, 38 and 39, Peter's just presented the gospel and his hearers at at Pentecost, the Bible says they were cut to the heart and they said, what must we do? And this was Peter's response. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord called, Lord our God, our God calls to himself. To believe in Jesus means one, to acknowledge and to believe who he is, he is who he says he is. 
We, we can often read over and skim over the word Christ as though it doesn't have much. It's like a, a, a last name for Jesus, but that's his title. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. He's the eternal word made flesh. He is God. So it begins with that. It begins with acknowledging that he is who he says he is. But then realizing that we've sinned against him and that we need forgiveness and that he's the only one who can forgive us and then throwing ourselves at his mercy and begging him and trusting him to forgive us in the way that he said that he would. That is what it means. In a truncated version, that is believing in Jesus. Not needing anything else but Jesus. Paul told the Ephesians in uh, Ephesians 1.13 that when they heard the word of the gospel and they believed it, then they were sealed by the Holy Spirit. They were made a new creation. And the same is true for every one of us who's in this room today. If you've heard the gospel, if you've believed in Jesus in the way that we just talked about, you can trust that he has sealed you with his spirit and that you are a new creation. Now, what about all those questions that we ask? Because those are important. Like I said, those are great diagnostic questions. What I don't want you to hear me say is we kind of begin to land the plane a little bit. What I don't want you to hear me say is that none of those questions matter. It doesn't matter if I read my Bible. It doesn't matter that if I go to church. It doesn't matter if I do all of the things that Scripture tells me I should do or Scripture says I should not do. Don't hear me say it doesn't matter. The Bible certainly says that those things matter. But it does not say that your salvation is dependent on those things. The only thing that it says your salvation is dependent on is Christ and Him crucified. Praise God for that, because if you're like me, you fall short. And I trust that you are like me. We all fall short. All of us, if we are looking to our lives and, and to our own emotions and to what we have done to determine whether or not God really has accepted us, whether he really does love us, at best, our life is going to be a highs and lows existence with God. At best, we're going to, in some moments, think that we're doing really good, and he's probably really pleased with me. And then we're going to go home, and our kids are going to act up, and we're going to blow it. <laughs> it's not going to be consistent. And if it is consistent, it's going to be either consistently anxious or consistently arrogant and prideful. We're never going to live in the confident assurance and the humble um, acceptance of our salvation that's been given to us. And so I hope that kind of as we've thought through Paul's main points in his conclusion, I hope that some of us have been kind of reflecting, what is it that you look to to assure yourself that Jesus loves you, that God loves you, that you are cherished by the creator God of this universe? If someone asked you that, not if someone asked you, are you saved? Because I think most of us would give the right answer. But if someone asked you, how do you know that Jesus and that God loves you and that he's pleased with you and that he accepts you? If your answer would be anything other than Christ and him crucified and I've been made a new creation and I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit, one, you're boasting in something that's not Christ, but two, whatever those good things are that you would point to that are, I bet would be obedient things, reading your Bible, praying, going to church, service, whatever. I bet you often find yourself doing them a little bit begrudgingly. And the reason is because just like 
the Jewish law became the slave master of the Galatians. Those things that you're looking to for your salvation or for your assurance, those have become your slave master. Reading the Bible, going to church, praying, all of these things that are good that should bring us uh, life can become a heavy weight whenever we're looking to them for our assurance. When we're doing them simply to please God and because we think we have to if we want to be accepted by Him, the things that should give us life become exceedingly burdensome. And we begin to find ourselves serving God out of duty and not out of love. And so if that's where you find yourself today, I pray that you would just recalibrate. Realize that your acceptance and God's favor and his love for you is based solely on the fact that you have been sealed by his spirit. Assuming you've believed the gospel, that you have been sealed by his spirit and that you've believed in Jesus. And that all of those other things are just, just acts of communion with God, acts of service to the Father who loves you and has blessed you immensely. That will breathe more life into your Christian walk than you could ever imagine. But it's a fight to stay in that mind frame. We often have to bring ourselves back to it. But if we've got anybody in here who has heard this, service, this sermon and this message from Paul and they're thinking, you know what, I, I don't know that I've been made a new creation. Because I've never believed in Jesus the way that Peter said. I've never fully surrendered myself to who Jesus said he is and, and to something further than an intellectual acceptance. I've never repented of my sins. I've never trusted and followed him and trusted that Jesus is the only way that I, I will ever please God. Then I urge you to put that burden down. In the same way that Paul urged the Galatians to put down the burden of the Jewish law and said that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, in freedom. I would encourage you. It's for freedom that Christ has come to set you free. To put down the burden of living the good life and hoping that you please God whenever it comes that time to stand before him and instead to trust that Jesus has done it for you. Jesus said, come to me all who labor and who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He said, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. So I urge you, if you haven't done that, do it today. And if you're asking yourself, what do I need to do? I echo Peter's words. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord has called to himself. If you've heard this message of the gospel, you've been called to Jesus. I urge you to respond rightly. And if you do, I, I, hope, you'll, I hope you'll tell somebody about it. I hope you'll step into the light with your, new, with your new relationship with Jesus. That is the message of Galatians. That there's nothing you can do and that the only assurance you have that any of us have that we stand right before the God of the universe and that he loves us and that he accepts us and that we are not just servants of his, but we are children of his. The only assurance we have of that is that we've been made a new creation by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the whole book of Galatians. <laughs> Praise God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for saving us despite ourselves, for showing us um, grace that we don't deserve, 
God, thank you for accepting us on Jesus' merit, not on our merit alone. Thank you for not allowing us or not uh, forcing us to be enslaved to anything. God, your, your law gives life. Your word gives life. Your spirit gives life. And so, God, I pray that if there's anybody in here who's not experiencing that, God, I pray that you would draw them into that. I pray that you would draw them into a saving relationship with you, one that is marked by life in the spirit, that's marked by um, an easy yoke and an easy burden and rest. God, I thank you that you've given that to all of us who have believed in Jesus. And I pray that you would help us to not take that for granted. And God, to love you all the more, to praise you all the more, because we can do so freely. God, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.